Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. This week, we are heading into the home stretch of the stand by starting book three. And wouldn't you know it, after spending the majority of book two in Boulder, Colorado, now we are heading west to Las Vegas and the Dark Man's Dominion. But first, let's recap chapters 59 and 60, the end of book two on the border. Fran wakes up from the dynamite blast to find herself in the hospital. She did not lose the baby, but she does learn that Nick and Sue are both dead, along with six others. There are many more injured as well, and Mother Abigail has returned, and she is lying comatose in Larry and Lucy's home. The Free Zone knows now that Harold and Nadine are to blame for the explosion, and a townwide meeting is held where everyone begins to discuss flag, finally and the dreams of the Wakandu that they had before coming to Boulder. Later, the power is successfully turned on, and Mother Abigail wakes to tell Larry, Stu, Ralph, and Glenn that they are to go west and confront Randall Flagg. There, God will help them make their final stand. She claims that one will fall before reaching their destination, but she does not know which one it will be. Nor does she know if the remaining three will make it back to Boulder, or even defeat Flag. Fran is very opposed to this, but Mother Abigail tells her that she cannot promise Fran's baby will live, but even if he does, will it matter if Flag is not defeated? Mother Abigail dies at sunrise, and the four men agree to go west. They set off on foot, without food or water, with only the clothes on their backs. So here we are in Book 3, The Stand, in Chapter 61, and... We are back with Judge Ferris. If you recall, Ferris left Boulder in August to head west to spy on Flag for the Free Zone. As he grows closer, Flag sends out his own scouts, placing guard posts along the eastern border of Oregon. And these guard posts were told that they are looking for a man who is around 70 years old, heavy set, and balding. He wears glasses, and he's driving a white over blue four-wheeled drive. He was to be killed when he spotted. Flag informs him that this man is a spy from the other side. Of course, Flag could welcome the spy with open arms, show him everything, and send him back with no harm done. But Flag wants him. He wants both of them. They're going to send their heads back over the mountains before the snow arrives, so they can chew on that for the entire winter. And he bellowed hot laughter at the people he had gathered together in one of the conference rooms at the Portland Civic Center. They smiled back, but their smiles were cold and uneasy. Aloud, they might congratulate each other on having been singled out for such a responsibility, but inside, they wished that those happy, awful, weasel-like eyes had fixed on anyone but them. 
So these guard posts are located at Ontario, manned by men out of Portland. The others are south of Ontario at Shayville. There's one near the tiny town of Flora, off Route 3, and then about 60 miles from the Washington border, down to McDermott on the Oregon-Nevada border. They've all been given the same orders. Kill the spy, but don't hit him in the head. Flag doesn't want to send back damaged goods. The northern border between Oregon and Idaho is marked by the Snake River. If you were to follow the snake north from Ontario, where the six men sat in their Peterbilt playing spit in the ocean for worthless money, you would eventually come to within spitting distance of Copperfield. The snake takes a kink here that geologists call an oxbow. And near Copperfield, the snake was dammed by the oxbow dam. And on the seventh day of September, as Stu Redman and his party trudged up Colorado Highway 6, over a thousand miles to the east and south, Bobby Terry was sitting inside the Copperfield Five and Dime, a stack of comic books by his side, wondering what sort of shape the Oxbow Dam was in, and if the sluice gates had been left open or shut. Outside, Oregon Highway 86 ran past the dime store. So Bobby Terry is there with his partner, Dave Roberts, and the Snake River was high due to the constant rain, and both of them worry that the Oxbow Dam could break and flood them all the way to the Pacific Ocean. They discuss going over there to the dam to look for cracks, but Dave has resisted. And why? Because Flag might be anywhere. He was a great traveler, and the stories had already sprung up about the way he could suddenly appear in a small, out-of-the-way burg, where there were only a dozen people repairing power lines or collecting weapons from some army depot. He materialized like a ghost. Only this was a grinning black ghost in dusty boots with run-down heels. Sometimes he was alone, and sometimes Lloyd Henry was with him, behind the wheel of a great big Dalmer automobile, black as a hearse and just as long. Sometimes he was walking. One moment he wasn't there, and the next moment he was. He could be in L.A. one day, or so the talk went, and show up in Boise a day later on foot. Of course, Flag couldn't be six places at once, could he? But still, he had a way of knowing things. There were some who said he had an unnatural power over the predators of the animal kingdom. A woman named Rose Kingman claimed to have seen him snap his fingers at a number of crows sitting on a telephone wire, and the crows fluttered down onto his shoulders. This, Rose Kingman said, and she further testified that they had croaked flag, 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 over and over. That was just ridiculous, and he knew it. Morons might believe it, but Bobby Terry's mother, Dolores, had never raised any morons. He knew the way stories got around, growing between the mouth that spoke and the ear that listened, and how happy the dark man would be to encourage stories like that. So now Bobby Terry is hanging out in this old five and dime. Dave is sleeping in the small apartment upstairs, and Bobby Terry is keeping an eye out for the Ford while reading comic books. Just as he's opened up his Batman, the vehicle they had been waiting for drove past. Bobby Terry watched it go and then finally moved, yelling for Dave at the top of his lungs. The judge had no idea that Flag had sent men out to watch for him. 
He'd had quite the adventure on his drive west from Boulder. He had taken I-80 for three days, though that had been pretty difficult as parts of the interstate had been congested with stalled traffic. Eventually, he took secondary roads and camped in Wyoming, east of Yellowstone. Eastern Idaho had been a frightening, dreamlike experience. He would not have thought that the feeling of death had set so heavily on such an empty land, nor on his own soul. But it was there, a malign stillness under all that big western sky, where once the deer and the Winnebagos had roamed. It was there in the telephone poles that had fallen over and not been repaired. It was there in the cold, waiting stillness of the small towns he drove a scout through. Lamont, Muddy Gap, Jeffrey City, Lander, Crowheart. His loneliness grew with his realization of the emptiness, with his internalization of the death feeling. He grew more and more certain that he was never going to see the Boulder Free Zone again, or the people who lived there. Franny, Lucy, the louder boy, Nick Andros. He began to think he knew how Cain must have felt when God exiled him to the land of Nod. Only that land had been to the east of Eden. The judge was now in the west. In Idaho, he had stopped roadside for a light lunch near a creek, and it was there he heard a horrible grinding sound nearby. He took his gun and went to explore, finding a man hanging from a tree. The birds had done quite a number on the man's flesh, and the grinding sound was the rope in which he hung, slipping back and forth over the branch it had been looped over. That was how he came to know that he was in the West. When the rain started, his arthritis triggered, and he had to take a full day off of driving, holed up in a hotel room with hot towels wrapped around his hands and knees. The next night, he stayed in the Ranchland Motel, comfortable with a battery-operated heater, reading law books. It was in this motel room that a crow came to visit him, tapping idly at the window, looking in at the judge laying there in his L.A. Lakers boxer shorts, a law book against his heavy belly. This startled the judge, of course, but he laughed it off as he saw it was just a bird, at least until the crow continued to tap at the window, and the judge was starting to get the impression that the crow was grinning at him. Like the raven that had flown in to roost on the bust of palace, when will I find out the things they need to know? Back in the free zone that seems so far away. Nevermore. Will I get any idea what chinks there might be in the dark man's armor? Nevermore. Will I get back safe? Nevermore. Tap, tap, tap. The crow, looking in at him, seeming to grin. And it hit the judge in a dreamy sort of state that this crow was him, the dark man. His soul, perhaps his ka, somehow projected into this rain-drenched, grinning crow. The crow's eyes seemed to grow larger. They were rimmed with red, he noticed, a darkly rich ruby color. Rainwater dripped and ran, dripped and ran. The crow leaned forward and very deliberately tapped on the glass. The judge thought, it thinks it's hypnotizing me, and maybe it is a little, but maybe I'm too old for such things. And suppose, it's silly of course, but suppose it is him, and suppose I could bring that rifle up in one quick snap motion. It's been four years since I shot any skeet, but I was club champion back in 76, and again in 79, and still pretty good in 86. Not great, no ribbon that year, so I gave it up. 
My pride was in better shape than my eyesight back then, but I was still good enough to place fifth in a field of 22. In that window's a lot closer than skeet shooting distance. If it was him, could I kill him? Trap his ka, if there is such a thing, inside that dying crow body? Would it be so unfitting if an old geezer could end the whole thing by the undramatic murder of a blackbird in western Idaho? The crow grinned at him. He was quite sure it was grinning. The judge grabbed his gun, and a kind of terror seemed to seize the crow. Its rain-drenched wings fluttered, spraying drops of water. Its eyes seemed to widen in fear. The judge aimed and pulled the trigger, but nothing happened, because the safety was on. By the time he turns it off, the crow is gone. He tries to tell himself that it was just a crow after all, but he slept poorly that night, convinced that he was hearing ghostly taps on the window. The next morning, he drove a bit more until stopping at a small cafe for lunch. And there was another crow, landing on a telephone wire nearby. The judge knew there were probably millions of crows by now. It was a crow's world now, after all. But he still felt it was the same crow. A presentiment of doom. A creepy resignation that it was all over. But he moved on, the gun beside him in his seat, the safety off. He had decided to shoot any crow he might see now, just on general principle. He did not pay much attention to the five and dime in Copperfield, where Bobby Terry was watching the four drive by. Bobby Terry and Dave are trying to catch up to the judge now. You had a good 10 minutes start on them by the time Bobby Terry got Dave up and he got dressed to go. Bobby Terry has a Winchester across his lap and a forty-five Colt in his belt. Bobby Terry keeps telling himself to shoot him in the guts, not the head, reminding himself of Flagg's orders. Finally, they're able to catch up to the judge, and as they near him, the judge pulls over. Dave tells Bobby Terry they need to act friendly. He tells Bobby Terry not to go off half-cocked, because if they do this right, they'll have a couple sweets in the MGM Grand. And if they fuck it up, they'll have their assholes cored out. Bobby Terry really doesn't want to have to do this, but Dave tells him to put a smile on his face. Bobby Terry is not very good at faking a smile, and King writes that he ends up looking like a mechanical funhouse clown grinning. So Dave decides to greet the judge instead. He has his old thirty-eight in his pocket. The judge gets out of the car to greet him, carrying his own rifle in his hand. They're friendly with one another, but only for a moment, shaking hands and introducing themselves. And then the judge sees Bobby Terry leaning out the window, holding his forty-five Colt in both hands. The judge seems to know what's about to happen, but he doesn't have much time to do anything about it. Dave shoots him in the midsection with his thirty-eight. The judge is driven back into the open driver's side door, and he loses his rifle. Nobody notices the crow that had landed on the nearby telephone pole. As Dave goes to finish the job, Bobby Terry fires his own gun. The bullet strikes Dave in the throat. He turned toward Bobby Terry, his jaw working in soundless, dying amazement, his eyes bulging. He took two shuffling steps forward, and then amazement went out of his face. Everything went out of it. He fell dead. Rain plinked and drummed on the back of his slicker. Oops. <laughs> God. 
But the judge has noticed that his arthritis is gone. The cure for arthritis, everyone, is a bullet in the guts. But the judge is not going to go quietly. He attempts to get his rifle and aims it at Bobby Terry. They fire at one another, but the judge's shot misses Bobby Terry, who retaliates by firing three times in rapid succession. The first bullet spanged a hole through the side of the scout's cab. The second struck the judge above the right eye. A forty-five is a large gun, and at close range does large, unpleasant things. This bullet took off most of the top of the judge's skull and hurled it back into the scout. His head tilted back radically, and Bobby Terry's third bullet struck the judge a quarter of an inch below his lower lip, exploding his teeth into his mouth where he aspirated them with his final breath. His chin and jawbone disintegrated. His fingers squeezed the Garen's trigger in a dying convulsion, but the bullet went wild into the white, rainy sky. Silence descended. Bobby Terry gets out of the car. He's proud of himself. He did it. He killed the scout. Killed his ass. Old Bobby Terry just killed him as dead as you'd want. Of course, now he starts to realize that it wasn't really the judge's ass he killed. The judge had died, leaning back into the car, and Bobby Terry has realized that the judge's face is pretty much gone. Even his teeth had been shattered and shot away. Nothing was really left but his nose, and even that was in bad shape. It could have been anyone. Flag had told him that he wanted to send the spy back to Boulder undamaged. But nope. This face could belong to anyone. There was no way to tell it had been the judge. And Bobby Terry? Well, he knows it's over here. That was all. He didn't dare to go east, and he didn't dare stay in the west. He would either wind up riding a telephone pole bareback or... or something worse. Were there worse things? Bobby Terry decides to go south. Maybe to Guatemala, Panama, Brazil. No east, no west. Just Bobby Terry safe and far away from the walking dude. Unfortunately, those plans will never come to fruition. Because he can hear a strange clocking sound like run-down boot heels hammering along the road. Bobby Terry starts to turn around. The clocking sound was speeding up. A fast walk, a trot, a jog, run, sprint, and Bobby Terry got all the way around. Too late. He was coming. Flag was coming like some terrible horror monster out of the scariest picture ever made. The dark man's cheeks were flushed with jolly color. His eyes were twinkling, with happy good fellowship and a great hungry, voracious grin stretched his lips over huge tombstone teeth, shark teeth, and his hands were held out in front of him, and there were shiny black crow feathers fluttering from his hair. Bobby Terry can't see a thing. Flag yells at him that Bobby Terry screwed it up, and he falls upon Bobby Terry. There were worse things than crucifixion. There were teeth. So this is a fairly short chapter compared to some of the others that we've had lately, but we finally get a little bit of insight into what the judge has been up to since he left Boulder. It seems as though it's been a nice little road trip for him, despite the destination. Although the judge seemed to know exactly when he entered into the West after finding a man hanging from a tree when stopping for something to eat. So that kind of gives you the impression of, you know crossing over into darkness. 
The rain does put a damper on things. It triggers his arthritis, and he's had an encounter, maybe two, with Flag in his crow form. I really did love the passage with Ferris in his motel room when the crow begins to tap on his window. It was very reminiscent of Edgar Allan Poe, which, of course, you know, King adds in the Nevermore. Um, But it was perfectly creepy for me, um, especially knowing that Crow was likely Flag, or at least Flag's essence. And the way King describes the bird as grinning, his uh, fear when the judge picks up the rifle to try and shoot it. It was just a really well-written passage, very atmospheric. I think that was probably my favorite passage of this chapter. And how anticlimactic would it have been if that safety had been off and the judge had been able to blow that bird sky high? Just like that, no more flag. Or would he have just left the body of the crow? I'm not entirely sure if he can change into a crow or he can just kind of take over a crow's body. I'm not entirely sure how it works, but I mean, there would have been no more flag. Story over, right? (laughs) But that was not meant to be. Ferris sees that crow again when he's eating at a small cafe the next day, and he knows in his guts that it was the same crow. That is the dark man. But the judge never really had a chance. Flag knew from the get-go that there were spies coming. Um, As Dave said, Flag has a way of knowing things. He had been keeping an eye on Nadine when she was with Harold. He had been the one to warn Nadine that they had found the ledger and that she and Harold needed to leave the free zone. So yes, he knew spies were on their way, and he put up guard posts around potential entry points into Nevada. He even knew who to look for, describing the judge and the kind of car he would be driving. So it kind of makes you think, what hope does the Free Zone have if Flag is so in tune with their plans? While the idea of sending scouts west to spy is a good one, they likely underestimated Flag's power. And perhaps that's why Mother Abigail sent the four men west to confront him. I don't know if Mother Abigail knew about Dana, Tom, and Judge Ferris going west already. Um, If she did know, she didn't mention it. But the interesting part of this chapter to me is kind of, I, I can't even say it's a throwaway line, but it's not really expanded upon. The interesting thing to me here is that Flag only mentions two spies. At the beginning of the chapter, he says he's a spy and we could welcome him with open arms, show him everything and send him back with no harm done. But I want him. I want them both. So he is only aware of two spies. Obviously, he knows about Judge Ferris. So does he know about Dana or Tom? Which one hasn't he been able to see yet? He also didn't mention the four men coming from the east, but this could have also taken place before Stu and the others set out. It's just really a shame that the judge had to go this way. He knew exactly what he was getting into, and he knew he was doing the right thing for the free zone. As he said, the free zone would never be free as long as Flag was out there. The judge had no way of knowing that Flag already knew he was coming. The Free Zone Committee had no way of knowing it either. And just like that, the judge is gone. And poor Bobby Terry, what a buffoon. Uh, These men were given these orders. It's obvious that Bobby Terry is not the sharpest tool in the shed, despite the fact that he said his mother Dolores didn't raise any morons. 
He seems to be the anxious type, perhaps a little trigger happy, or very trigger happy, given that he shoots off his gun after Dave had already shot the judge, killing Dave in the process. Fly can see the spies coming from the east, but he can't see the idiots that he has under his power. Why would he send someone like Bobby Terry out for something that seems to be very important? Bobby Terry destroys the judge's face, knowing Flag wanted to send the judge's head back to Boulder as a warning to show what he's capable of, to let them think on that horror all winter before spring comes and he comes for them. But Bobby Terry screwed it up and Flag makes him pay. Flag's people by now have to be very aware of his violence and his abilities, how he can show up any anywhere how he can know things that he probably shouldn't. They're very clearly frightened of him, of messing up and being crucified. There are no mistakes allowed. There are no second chances under Flag's rule. You screw up, you die. So how many people living in Vegas are okay with living in that kind of fear? Maybe some of them feed off of it. Maybe some of them get enjoyment out of it. But not Bobby Terry. He had wanted the judge to come in a different way. He wanted someone else to deal with this. Yes, if they did it, did the right job, then yeah, like Dave said, they might have been put up at the MGM Grand. But if they screw it up, they know exactly what's going to happen to them. And Bobby Terry screwed it up. And he knows he has to run. But he didn't really have the time because Flag was already there watching everything go down as a crow perched on a nearby telephone pole. Bobby Terry had no chance. So we lost the judge and he didn't even make it to Vegas. But what about Tom? What about Dana? Dana left after Judge Ferris. So what route did she take? Did she make it to Vegas without Flag's men intercepting her? We will catch up with Dana next in Chapter 62. And that is it for this episode of The Circle Opens. Just a quick heads up, there will be no new episode next week on July 25th, as I will be taking a small vacation to spend time with my family, and I will return on August 1st with Chapter 62. If you are enjoying this podcast, uh, it would be amazing if you guys left me a rating review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. You can find me on social media at The Circle Opens, or you can contact me through the blog, thecircleopens.com. I hope everybody out there is staying safe and healthy. I hope you're all wearing your masks when you go out in public and practicing social distancing. Um, Like you guys, I'm sure I am so, so over this pandemic. So do your part, stay the distance, wear a mask, and hopefully we can get through this uh, quickly. So that's it, you guys. I hope you're all doing well. And M-O-O-N, that spells, I'll see you guys on August 1st. <laughs>